augmented reality applications can be used on smartphones and dedicated AR headsets. On smartphones, AR Core from Google and AR Kit from Apple allow developers to build for the camera on a user's smartphone. AR headsets such as Microsoft HoloLens and Magic Leap allow for a futuristic augmented reality headset experience. It's still early days for augmented reality. The most prominent use of augmented reality today is gaming, with a notable example being Niantic's Pokemon Go. Tony Goddard is a software engineer who works on augmented reality and virtual reality applications. Tony joins the show to talk about his day job working on virtual reality experiences and an AR game he built called A-Rhythm. Tony was the winner of the Find Collabs hackathon, our first hackathon, and we also discussed his experience working on this A-Rhythm project on Find Collabs. We are having the second Find Collabs hackathon. You can go to findcollabs.com slash open and find out more about that hackathon. We're giving away $2,500 in prizes for projects like machine learning, music, visual art, podcasting, data visualization, cryptocurrencies, computer games. These different categories are things that I'd love to see cool projects built with on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is a place to build projects and find collaborators. I hope to see you there, and if you want to find out more, go to findcollabs.com open. Tony Godar, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Describe the state of augmented reality applications today, including gaming and non-gaming. It's still quite early. Uh, I guess the big breakout was was the Pokemon game that went out, and then that kind of made it mainstream. But I think that kind of gave everyone a false sense of security that it was a mature technology. And I didn't even realize until I kind of did this hackathon uh, really, how immature, how early it is in in the AR AR altogether. So, no, it's got a, a huge amount of potential. Okay, so there's a lot of potential, but there's not really any applications today. Can you help me understand the gulf between those two? There's pieces. So we have like essentially we have a lot of tech demos out there. We have a lot of uh, viral videos out there. But really, the viral, viral videos are just little few-second snippets. There isn't really, a, I guess there's some business applications or, or like the IKEA app, which they've actually pulled it off. And there's some like measuring tapes and so forth. But really no big breakthrough yet. And it's going to take time. I think phones are evolving to be able to handle it seamlessly. And people are getting more used to it. Do you think it's a technology issue? Do you think it's more, I mean, like you're, you're holding out your phone. It, it's kind of a weird situation. We have to do that. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense for something like gaming where, you know, you're willing to kind of bend over backwards in order to play the Pokemon game and catch the Pokemon, especially because everybody else around you is doing it. But is there something wrong with the form factor? Are we going to need the AR glasses in order to make this a reality? When we're looking out, I definitely think we're going to need the glasses. Right now, kind of the, the big popular uh, AR app or killer app right now is kind of the, the masks that you have on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. Those 
especially with the cameras and the, and the phones evolving, are, are really good. And those are ones that are heavily used. And I think from there, they're going to evolve that. So you're looking in the other direction. And then by that point, glasses are going to show up. Tell me about the state of the AR tooling. If you want to build an augmented reality app today, what is the tooling? So there's ARKit and ARCore, and functionality is very similar. The Apple ecosystem's a lot more mature, uh, which I discovered. The Android one, because of the random head, uh, handsets you have out there, some support ARCore, some don't. And that's what really hit me with it with this hackathon, is trying to find people to collaborate with that had an Android phone that supported this was really hard because Apple had its standard since the, the 6S. Pretty much everyone with an Apple phone supports it nowadays. I developed primarily, I guess, initially to an Android device, and it was okay. We had some frame rate issues, and, and it worked okay. And I was quite shocked when I, when I got it working on an iPhone, even a, a lower-end iPhone, how well it worked. So I think it's Android's going to catch up a bit, software and hardware. Yeah, I think I... And so, 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 so AR Core, AR Core is the, or AR Kit. I'm sorry, that's the uh, that's the iOS version. What's the API? Because I mean, so, so I developed a, an, an AR Kit application with somebody else a while ago. It was about about a year and a half ago, and I remember it was there were it was pretty cool, but there were a lot of annoyances. Like in order to get 3D models, we kind of had to like make the 3D models ourselves, and it was kind of hard to figure out like how to put those 3D models into the world and the workflow for building them. There was something involved with Unity. Uh, I don't know. The story was required a lot of Googling and Stack Overflow searching, as any early technology does. But give me a little bit more detail on what ARKit requires of you today. So I got lucky in that I discovered early on in, in the hackathon about Vero React, which kind of sits over and allows you to easily access both ARKit and ARCore, depending on which device you're on. So that, that was a big win. And also, it's, it's in React Native. So I was new to language, but it's an easy one to, to kind of figure out, and it worked really well. So I think in a short time frame, getting something proof of concept, that was a big help. Realistically, though, there's still a lot of challenges. So a lot of, um, I guess, the, the 3D geometry, the, the, the physics, a lot of it has to be coded. Importing the models was quite a pain. I don't have a Mac, or I didn't have a Mac at the time, and the tools to import them were only available on Mac. So I just pretty much took an existing model and retextured it because of lack of time. <laughs> However, even, even um, I think things are evolving. Um, there is a tool that Facebook is coming out with, or has had out, but it's evolved a lot. So Facebook AR Studio. AR Studio. I remember seeing Spark. this thing. Yeah, so I didn't use Spark for the hackathon because it was, again, only Mac only and quite limited. But even, I think, right now, today and tomorrow is the big F8 conference where Facebook is announcing what they're doing the next year. And I saw some news that they're going to add quite a bit more functionality to Spark and kind of make it a lot more approachable. And one thing that really interested me was the ability to bring in music and actually code to the music. And this one is it's a lot less coding and it's a lot more kind of a node-based connect-the-box type system. And it looks quite impressive. It's surprising to me that a framework built by Facebook 
that sits over both ARCore and ARKit, which are themselves quite nascent technologies. It's surprising to me that Facebook's technology that sits over those nascent technologies is useful because, I mean, usually in order to get to a point where, you know, you have this uh, additional API layer on top of, of existing API layers usually only happens when the underlying API layers are are a little bit more mature. Did it surprise you that Facebook's thing that sits over the image, the two immature things actually worked well for you? Well, I think the Facebook Spark side of things, their big advantage is they're going to be, in, or they are embedded in Instagram, embedded in Facebook, embedded in Facebook Messenger. So, so the Vero core that I used is has nothing to do with Facebook. It's just they used uh, React Native language, which is loosely, to, well, it is originating from, from Facebook. But but their AR Studio doesn't use a coding language. It's all visual. I think one roadblock for these small little proof of concepts is kind of if I use a Vero React, a small 30-second experience for someone to download from the store is very unlikely. However, if I did the same thing in Facebook's AR Studio and all my friends and all their friends linked to it and could actually try it from within Instagram or Facebook, that would reach way more people. So I think that's the big advantage on their side. So you developed this game, A-Rhythm. Describe your idea for A-Rhythm. Essentially, I wanted to, so we were in Easter break and had some free time. I was off work, kids were off school, and uh, your hackathon came along. I wanted to kind of do something with them, and so I wanted to bring music into some sort of game. And this was kind of like the first thing that hit me is kind of a music beat type game with, uh, with AR. And it just kind of snowballed from there, seeing which technology is available and, and the, the potential. But yeah, it just kind of naturally, the natural choice for me to, to, to go for it. The market for music-based games has always struck me as, I mean, it's, it's just funny that Dance Dance Revolution was such a popular game, but it seems like that was really the only music-based game that really took off. Are there any other examples of music-based games that really took off? Oh, many, many. So there's... Uh, so we well, I guess there's the, Guitar the, the sing- Hero also. The Sorry. Guitar Hero, those were massive on the consoles. There's a lot of singing and dancing. There's like um, the, the SingStar st- series that PlayStation came out with. I think Just Dance series that Ubisoft came out with. I think, yeah, my kids, when they go to their friend's house, I, they still play those games with their friends. They really, I just the social nature of them, they're always going to be around and they, they're evolving. And in the VR world, kind of the, the, by far the most popular VR game right now is a music game. So Really? What Beat is it? Saver, Beat Saver. Oh, so that's the most popular game in VR. It's really, yeah. What do you do that's in Beat Saber? You have two lightsabers and there are objects coming at you and you slash away at them at the beat. And. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and your idea for a rhythm was kind of like an augmented reality version of this. Exactly. So that one kind of sparked my interest in how would you do this in AR. And I, I learned a lot from trying to implement a very similar sort of mechanics. And 
yeah, uh, it's got potential. I think the mechanics are very different because you're not immersed. You don't have, I guess, controllers in your hands. Yeah, tell, it's got a lot of potential. tell me about the spec required for a rhythm. When you sat down and you were like, okay, this is something I'm going to build. Tell me about the process of scoping it out. So essentially, because it was quite limited time, uh, a lot of it was really the learning curve. So it, it was really up until the two days before the last two days of the hackathon, I was just kind of learning the language, learning how, how to do things. So I had a bunch of little test cases. So, so I knew what it was capable of. So to, to bring in a 3D model, to be able to move it, and some sort of sound uh, interaction. And then I guess from there, the, the whole goal was to have kind of a 3D object coming towards you and to be able to touch it or slash it and for it to explode. Uh, and then next phase would be kind of to time that with the music and see if it's fun. Overall, it was yeah worked quite well. Not as fun as I expected, <laughs> but I think it's got potential. Since then, I've made some tweaks and checked that into to, to GitHub repo, and it's a little bit funner now. Do you find Beat Saber fun? Oh yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, so what was the hardest part about getting to a functional MVP? I guess the fine details. I struggled a lot with controlling the 3D shape multiple instances of it in real time and for it to react quickly so that when you touch it, it it explodes and vanishes. So that took a lot of back and forth and also doing that in a way that it performs well. So it was just down to my, my lack of knowledge of using React Native. And once I learned a little bit more about React Native, it, it fit in quite well. And I guess the, the challenge at the end was when I, I saw the potential of more, where I could do more with it, but it just wasn't enough time. So I, I've seen the videos of the game. Basically, wherever you're standing, you have these cubes flying at you uh, while music is playing, and then you kind of like take actions in the AR world to make those cubes explode. Just tell me about what is required to program augmented reality cubes flying at you in the current world of AR APIs? Well, essentially, the key was giving, uh, I guess, creating one cube with a texture, lighting it in, in a way that it was natural for the environment. So if you look at the video, when I'm indoors, it looks a bit odd. But when I'm outside, it looks really good. Just simply the, the lighting's fixed to, to one environment, and that was the out, outdoor in the future, you could have it take the lighting from the room and that lighting will be matched. Then from there, I chose, I think, about six of those. And it just takes one 3D model and it uses it six times. And that performs quite well. Did a little spinny animation on it. And then it's about moving it over a period of time. So I'm not updating every frame. It's just got a start point, got an end point, and then at the end point it has an event, and then the event is just to bring it back to the front of the scene. And then at at a point where it's close enough, you check whether it's been touched, and if it's been touched, you explode it and then trigger a sound effect. When you're programming a cube to move through space, is it a 3D Cartesian model or, or like what's the model of describing where an object is in space around you in an AR application? So your camera when you start off so it's calibrating to one spot and that's 
essentially zero 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 and XYZ coordinates. And then you're, you're based on, on that. So uh, once it's calibrated, the objects are, are f flowing towards you. So you can, you can sidestep and, and watch them come past you. Uh, or you can stand right in the middle and have them come right at you. Were you able to get the cubes to move in a way that was syncopated to the rhythm? No. <laughs> so they're pretty much coming at you at a, at a random, uh, random speed right now. In the future, yes, I, I, I need to get that in there because uh, that's very important to it. However, the, the whole touching isn't really the direction I, I'm hoping to go. I think it's more of avoiding and catching would be a lot more interesting or is a lot more interesting. Yeah. Do you have any engineering ideas about how to make a general model for synchronizing a moving object in a game to a piece of music? At this point, I haven't really planned it out. So not at this point. Uh, so uh, essentially, the data I'm using, so, so Beat Savers allows people to submit their own levels. And so they're publicly available. So they include the music and also the timings. So right now, I'm planning on kind of reusing those timings with those songs because they work pretty good already. Oh, that's cool. Wait, so how, but how do you get access to that data? Wait, did you say it's open source? They have on their website, you can download a zip file, and the zip file contains a JSON file oh, and a music file. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and there's a lot of songs, a lot of people submitting songs. That's really cool. So, I mean, I think I told you this, but just, you know, for the listeners, when I was in college, I, I made a game that had kind of a, a similar inspiration, like where I would have a song, and then I wanted the song to generate the stock prices that would move according to like syncopated with the time of the music and and my way of, of doing it was actually somebody somebody else told me about this originally i was thinking okay you could take the sound wave and then you could make a bitmap from the sound wave and the bitmap from the sound wave could be used to translate into like intensity levels right because you know it would be an image of the sound wave and at the more intense parts of it you could just say okay this 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 is a more intense moment and then you kind of have a an up and down graph of, of intensity over time, and you can derive, you know, kind of the, the movements of the game from that. But uh, my brother actually told me to use a Fourier transform, which can be uh, used to, to modify a, like, a highly dimensional space into, uh, I don't know if that's exactly how you would say it, but I think a highly dimensional space into just kind of a lower dimensional, like, you know, up and down motion, perhaps. But anyway, it's, it's, it's kind of a random and interesting domain. Like, how do you translate music into, a, like, a, a more uh, workable function to have gaming syncopated to the music? So, so part of this, um, I guess, part of this hackathon, uh, the research part of it, I played as many, I guess, music and beat games as I could find on the, the Android and iOS store. What I found is a lot of them, you're, you're allowed to import your own music, and they use a similar sort of algorithm where it's generating what you, I guess, what you go towards or what you click on or whatever. And what I found was if it isn't 100% accurate, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's so, horrible. I mean, that's that's well, how my game ended up. It was like, it just looked like <laughs> the, the things that were generated were completely random and had nothing to do with the music. So I really like the idea that for something like this, to add new levels, you'd probably need a level editor 
where you're going through and repeating, repeating, repeating until you really perfect it. The timing has to be exact. And once it's exact, then it's fun. I think if you make one or two mistakes, then you're, you're totally going to get someone out of flow and then it's no, not fun mm. anymore. And these music games are, it's essential that someone gets into flow. That's really cool. But so I guess you get there in Beat Saber, you're able to, to really just syncopate with yourself with the music as you're slashing these objects. Yeah, totally. It also helps a lot because you're wearing a VR headset, so you're completely immersed. You're completely surrounded, and what you have in your hand are glowing lightsabers, which is, is good fun. To give people more context for who you are, you have spent a long time in the gaming industry, and you currently work at a company called Melody VR. Explain what Melody VR is. So Melody VR is essentially we have an app for the Oculus Go and Gear VR and I guess the Quest that's been just announced today. And what we do is we have live music concerts from a huge amount of, of artists where we've gone in and recorded up to 10 jump spots. Um, I guess purchase these shows and, and watch them from end to end, go around to different spots of it. And yeah, it's quite exciting. How would you compare the maturity of the virtual reality world to that of the augmented reality world? It's very different, very different. I think virtual reality lends itself to very different experiences. And virtual reality, definitely because it's immersive, you, you don't have... To worry about so so, um, a lot of the headsets right now don't have six degrees of freedom, so you're kind of stuck in one spot. That's not a problem. That would be impossible in AR. So that bought it a lot of time. Also, the whole immersion factor. Once you block out all of your field of view, you can totally get into it. You don't have those distractions that you would in AR. I think AR. Once we have some headsets out there, once we have some glasses which don't look really dorky then there's a, a lot of potential for those. And until then, there's going to be a, a lot of improvements in phones and cameras that will make the phone experience slowly better and better. And the developer tooling for VR, how does that compare to that of AR? I guess with VR, you have a lot more power in general. So initially, you, you're doing your development on a desktop PC. So way different than, than, than a mobile phone. Then later on, when the, when the Oculus Go and the Gear VR came in there was a lot less power but it's quite optimized like like a game console uh, especially the go whereas a phone you're 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 sharing your resources with a lot and, and the, the updates and, and the, the different variations it's a much trickier to target such a, a wide range of devices so but when an actual headset device comes out that, that, that can hit the mass market uh, and be one fixed piece of hardware there's a lot of potential there do you think that both of these technologies, AR and VR, will these both eventually be mainstream technologies? Oh, definitely, definitely. Definitely. Um, yes. What makes you so sure about that? Well, I've been involved with VR and 3D and for, for so many years now, so probably two, three years before Sony announced it even. Uh, it's been really part of my life in that aspect. And... Yeah, I just can't imagine because it's evolved so much and because it's evolving at such a high pace, it's just going to integrate into into our lifestyles. And AR is going to be a major step to take a lot of the the tricky bits in, in VR where it was too isolated, not social enough, and, and that it'll really bridge the gap. And by that point, the hardware is going to be 
advanced enough that it'll be able to push the yeah it'll be able to have enough horsepower to put to push everything how deeply have you looked into the hardware like what are the hardware bottlenecks to getting i guess devices small enough or or do you just do you just know this in the sense that it's a general trend well i guess the whole lens is getting there but it's still a massive device and it's still expensive device i think about a year ago in when i think facebook announced one of their ar headsets that they're they're looking into one of their head researchers talked a lot about it but really said it's not until it's going to be the size of a pair of glasses that it'll really take off and i I kind of agree with him on that and what do we need to get there i guess we need like super small chips like do and how how hard would it be to get to that size of chip do you have any any idea on the the uh the state of the chip design Essentially, it's going to be a, a wireless connection to your phone in your pocket. Oh, oh, and, okay. And it'll be a display embedded in your glasses with enough battery power, and it's also going to have to have some um, gyros and 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 some cameras which don't creep people out. <laughs> so I guess a lot of challenges to overcome. I don't know the wireless definitely close. The wireless connection, like you, you think that's okay? Because I mean, if you if if you have some kind, of, like my Bluetooth headphones, they, there's there's hiccups all the time. Whenever there's a Bluetooth hiccup and my podcast starts to sound weird or choppy, it's like it's so disorienting. And I, I compare that to how disorienting it would be if I was wearing AR glasses or VR glasses. I, I think it would just be too problematic for me to want to even engage in the experience. Yeah, I guess if if the battery life is a few hours, it's going to be very painful. Uh, kind of like the, the early smartwatches where it could barely last a day. It was really painful. But it's not even battery life. It's like short field network connectivity. But maybe that's just an engineering problem that remains to be solved. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time. I guess likely the, the first few generations will have a wire coming out of one of the one of the arms of the, of the, of the heads of the glasses. So sure, and maybe that's not so bad. I mean, like we for a very long time, or at least you know, pe- even people who still don't have Bluetooth headphones, all due respect to them, you know, they still have a cord coming out of their ears and going into their pocket. So maybe that would be a fine form factor if the glasses were good enough. Yeah, I think that's a, probably the, the next logical step. But once it's wireless and once the batteries and, and I guess everything's in there, then it's really going to be everywhere. You spent like, what was it, 20 years of your career in, in the gaming world before you started working at Melody VR, or was it 10 years? Uh, yeah, so I was at PlayStation R&D for a good 14 years, and before that I was working on PlayStation 2 game for a couple of years before that. Well, what has drawn you to the gaming industry? It's kind of accidental. I never really had, the, I guess, expected that I'd be going into the game industry. But after finishing college, um, I went to Japan and ended up getting a job there, not really game-related. But at the time, PS2 was at its peak. So everyone wanted to make a PS2 game, kind of like when the, the iPhone was at its peak and everyone yeah, everyone and their gram, granny were, were making iPhone apps. At the time there, it was it was PS2 games. So I jumped on that and really never looked back. <laughs> so your experience building this thing was part of the Find Collabs hackathon. You actually won the Find Collabs hackathon for your A Rhythm application, and I, you know, thought that was well deserved because you were really grinding on it, and the end result was something that was quite cool. I, I would love to get your your take on both the Find Collabs platform and 
the hackathon. I mean, I don't want this to turn into an into an ad for for the product I'm I'm building, but I, I'd really just like to get like from a feedback perspective, what you think of the platform. I think for me it was really timing, and it just kind of showed up. I was listening to your podcast. You mentioned it. I checked it out, and I really liked the idea. So so many of these collaboration sites out there are more towards someone trying to make a quick buck and they're not really towards learning or even just the experienced developer who wants to do some coding on the side for fun and this one really fit that that niche and timing wise i had free time and there was a good momentum there you guys had your your meetup and i could join in remotely and talk to you guys and that, that sort of thing and i think there's yeah Definitely, as you get more people onto this site, I guess the most frustrating thing for me was trying to get people to, to join. I think it's easy for someone to start their own idea and bring some of their friends on it, but to kind of convince a stranger to join their idea, it's still not quite there yet, but it'll get there. It'll get there. I think once some universities and once, um, I guess, some clubs, coding clubs and so forth start getting involved with, with this sort of thing, it, it could really take off. That's my sense too. And you know, since you've tried out Fine Collabs and I think you embody the kind of uh the spirit of developer that I I really wanted as an early user of the platform, maybe the idea kind of resonates with you, but like there have been numerous times where I've just been like back when I was a software engineer in industry, like it's I think every weekend almost every weekend I would be hacking on something and whether that was like a music project or an artistic project or an editorial project or a podcast or something in software so a rails app or something I always wanted to work with other people but I could never find people to collaborate with and what I wonder is is that like an inherent aspect of like the way that we just exist as software developers? Like, do we just want to be working in isolation on these like kind of weekend projects? Or, or is it like, is there a problem with the social networks and the social tools that are just inhibiting us from doing this? Good point, yeah. Because yeah, I probably wouldn't go on Facebook and say I'm, I'm working on this project for the next 48 hours and uh, it's not really something that people go around showing off to their their general social friends yeah but but overall um when always when i've hired younger engineers one of the main things was kind of do they code for fun or do they code for because they have to and those that do it for fun it's massive the quality of their output and and i guess they're just enjoying coding it's night and day it's night and day so having a somewhere where people who enjoy coding can just have fun with coding is a good break. So like for me, the whole fact that I could learn and play with React Native was actually a lot of fun. Pretty much if I join another hack, well, I will join the next hackathon. And what I'll do is try and find something in, out of my comfort, comfort zone again, but even more out of my comfort zone. Very cool. So how much of your, and you can be honest with me here, how much of your entry was motivated or how much of your use of Fine Collabs was motivated by this hackathon, uh, like semi-competitive element? Competitive was helpful, definitely. Having a, a prize is always great. But I think what motivated me more was the fact that 
others to compete against and others who were also wanted to win. So, so back when I was at, at PlayStation, we did quite a lot of hackathons in the last five years or so. And I really enjoy doing those. When I moved to the startup, we don't have that sort of thing. But the kind of the whole startup culture is a little more, is a, little, a lot more high paced. Uh, so it's almost essentially a constant hackathon. <laughs> but overall, a safe place where you're competing against people who are kind of the same mindset, whether where they're learning and enjoying it is kind of a rare thing. So we just built this enterprise thing where basically people can log in with their enterprise Gmail and then they get like a private instance of Find Collabs. And I'm trying to figure out if this is something that people want. I mean, we're trying a lot of things right now, and I'm not really sure if I should just focus on one thing and double down on it. You know, we've kind of got this like open network idea. We've sort of got this, the hackathon thing that has some traction, but, you know, it's then that's paid acquisition. And like, is that really real users? Is that like a legitimate user? Is that a long-term user? Maybe we're a hackathon platform. I don't really know. Do any of these use cases sound like particularly things that you would double down? If you were in my position, like entrepreneurially speaking, what like are in, would you focus on any one of these particular verticals? I would focus on academia, definitely. That's your best market to kind of mix academia with experienced engineers who are doing this for fun. And you're going to make a lot of, they get to make the connections, they get to learn from each other, and there'll be a good challenge back and forth. I definitely go that route. And there's so many, I guess, groups of academia which already have that sort of hackathon experience against each other. It's just you could really? bring a lot of them together. How do you know that? Who, who? I don't know of any academia hackathon things or like how how would you go to market? What would you be your strategy? If you're in my shoes, how would you find those people? I'll send you some links of some I guess universities in, in UK okay. later on. Okay. So, so I've worked with uh, sponsoring PhD students in the past, and they and there's a lot set up where you have five, ten universities collaborating together. Uh, with their PhD students, and then those PhD students work together. But there was also kind of the standard engineering aspect of it together with the PhD students, and they do things like hackathons and so forth. It depends on the school. Some are doing it for their own intellectual property, and I think you'll find the same with doing your Finic Labs in a, in a corporate environment. A lot of them are doing it to spark innovation ideas and to spark their own intellectual property. They may not necessarily want to share it, but school is generally a lot more open. Right, right. Good point. Yeah, you know, part part of this, another curiosity I have and that I'm trying to evaluate in the midst of building Find Collabs is what is the the gradient from project to product? Like in some cases, it's, it's very deliberate. Like you have kind of the Y Combinator mentality where it's like you figure out a problem in your life and then you try to find a solution to that problem or you know, you, you're you working in a big company and you see them build this internal solution and then you're like, oh, I want to bring that to the masses. And like, there's all these kind of like classic prototypical stories. But I guess I'm just trying to figure out if there's a potential for like an on-ramp from side projects to to products and what that on-ramp would look like. Does, does Fine Collab seem like a place that would be useful for, for that as well? Like the, you know, because there's like kind of the co-founder dating element like that's that's a that's a commonly cited problem like how do you find co-founders that's another thing that i'm 
kind of playing around with it. Have you ever had a desire to find co-founders or find other people to build products with? I'm not sure because I've been in the big company for so long and then I'm only new to the startup game. So, and it's very different here. So I'm in London, England, so very far away from the, the West Coast. I don't know. The direction I went with this project, so the first thing I I did was I, I, I tagged all the code as GPL. So that way sharing it makes complete sense and there's no real risk. Well, there's the risk, but there's the, the, it's more of an, an educational exercise. And I think if it was a closed kind of aiming to be something to be sold, then there's going to be tension between the between the group. So having something open and always open targeted makes more sense because the value is what you learn. It's not what you what you create. Essentially, if I were to, to make a, a AR beat game, to use this as the, as the playground, learn stuff, throw away all the code and start from scratch and do it right. And just to be able to share that code in GPL it and not worry about it, pretty much ensure that anyone who is playing with it will just be playing with it to learn, and then they will go about and write it from scratch themselves too. What caused you to go from a bigger company to a startup? I really enjoy kind of the underdog challenge and kind of inside of a team being the underdog and trying to kind of succeed. So when I first started, we were doing heavily the, the PlayStation Portable, which at that point there was no... Uh, portable game console and so it was kind of to, to, to catch up to Nintendo DS and then the PS3 was a big challenge uh, battling with Xbox 360 and from there uh, the PS4 for that to be successful I kind of hit a pattern and then, and then I had this opportunity and I really liked the, the, the mixture between VR and music, just meeting with artists, being able to go and there's, I'm working on hardware and software projects, which I really enjoy. That was really appealing and I'm so glad I made the move and I wish I made the move earlier. What's your sense of the shifting business requirements for musicians? Because my sense is that social media and streaming have really changed the economics in in a pretty dramatic way and change the requirements for musicians like tell me about some of your conversations with these people well, i guess they're all really excited in technology and there isn't necessarily that many opportunities for them to get involved in technology a lot of i guess on the music side of things they're they're they don't have a group of coders working with them so everything's kind of magic to them and to be able to give them a service and work with them and offer them a lot of technology to explore with um, is quite empowering and they're, they're all really excited to work with us. Does the VR experience, like how, how does it compare to, so what you do again at Melody VR, you basically you put on a VR headset and then it transports you to the conference or the uh, the concert, and it's not it's not uh, necessarily a live recording. I don't think. I think it's or do you do live recordings also, or is it just like the the post concert recording where you can kind of download it and then just beam yourself into it? 
So when, when I first started, we were doing a lot of recordings. So we're going out to like many times a week to a lot of shows around Europe and North America. So we had a big back catalog. And then at the end of last year, we focused a lot on live and we really, really got that really down pat. And, and live is amazing uh, in VR. Just knowing at that time that it's happening is massively different. We saw some some video of some a young girl watching this concert we did live before Christmas, and she was crying as as Liam Payne came close to her, and she really felt like she was there. And it, it, live is really really quite impactful, and and we're doing a lot more of that now. You said Liam Payne? Yeah. Nice. The economics of Melody VR. It rem- actually reminds me a lot of the economics of Software Engineering Daily because basically you you kind of do a little bit of upfront work. Well, I mean, it's kind of it's a little bit or a lot depending on how you look at it. Like, I mean, I do my research before a show. I oftentimes it's I'm looking at documentation. I'm doing a lot of technical research, but ultimately it's not that much work. And I produce a podcast artifact, and then the podcast artifact is is pretty durable and it's an evergreen piece of content. That seems somewhat similar. You go to these concerts, you set up cameras, you record the concert, you're developing a workflow in that process. You're developing a physical workflow that's not necessarily easy to, to develop, but it's not rocket science. I mean, you can figure it out. You record the content, and the content is evergreen. Like, I, you and I were talking about this, but you know, there are these famous concerts in history, like the Simon and Garfunkel at Central Park concert i'm sure there's there's plenty of other ones where if you would have like set up a vr concert there that would have i don't know millions of downloads and that's like really good unit economics on a content business and the key though is really something that we had to evolve over time is capturing it right so for a camera to do 360 recording in almost pitch black with strobing lights with smoke with confetti it's quite a challenge so with our live shows we we end up making our own cameras which was yeah a good good fun part of the challenge so as i've gone from working at bigger companies to working at my own like very very small company the the software engineering daily podcast one thing I do like about the smaller size is I have I, I get a pretty intimate understanding of the inputs and in, the financial inputs and outputs of the business and how those relate to technology, how those relate to like web services costs, how those relate to purchases of hardware and so on. It gives me a really comforting holistic understanding. Now you're you're a senior software engineer at Melody VR. I don't know how many people are there. To what degree do you feel you have a, a holistic understanding of the inputs and outputs of the company? Oh, it's night and day compared to being at, uh, at PlayStation. <laughs> uh, so that was a big appealing thing is kind of being able to do work that directly impacts the customer and uh, not going through so many layers. So yeah, it's great in that. I get to go to some of the concerts. I get to, when we're recording Liam Payne, he walks past and I, I get to show him on the VR headset how, how it looked and, and talk to him and yeah, that sort of thing. Quite a big change, and yeah, I really enjoy it. Just to wrap up, I, I'd love to get some perspective on what you would be building if not for any particular hackathon incentives. Like, let's say you were just, you had a free weekend, you wanted to build something, what would that project be? To be honest, there's so much going on at work. I, I If I have free time, I, I'd 
jump on some of that. So I'm a bit of a workaholic in that aspect. So th th this was actually a great opportunity in that it allowed me to kind of reboot my... I was stuck on a few areas, and after kind of focusing solely on this hackathon, going back, I solved those problems a lot faster. Fascinating. Like, you going back to the problems at work, you mean? Yeah. So that, that brings a pretty interesting point, which is the fact that by taking yourself out of the day-to-day -day rigors you can actually end up solving the problems of the day-to-day -day rigors more efficiently. Yeah, I'm totally convinced that's doing this every every couple of months. Even if it's in total amount of time, it's cutting into some work time, I think overall efficiency-wise and kind of motivation and just kind of skill set, it's a massive boost. Okay. Well, Tony, it's been really great getting to know you, and I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you competing in the hackathon. Congratulations again on winning, and I, I look forward to seeing you in the next hackathon once we announce it. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the podcast, and yeah, thanks for, for doing all this. We really appreciate it. Okay, awesome. Wow. Wow.